0: The purpose of this case isn't to determine if there is a Santa Claus, but to determine if this man, Kris Kringle, is in fact Santa Claus. Do you recognize that movie line? It's the conflict to be resolved in the film Miracle on 34th Street. I feel completely justified using a Christmas illustration in the first couple of weeks of spring Because we have temps in the teens and there's still some snow on the ground. Ridiculous. As far as winter is concerned, it could still be Christmas. Now you might recognize that line, but do you remember what happened immediately following that line? You know, the prosecuting attorney, the judge, the press, every observer in the courtroom, they all gasped collectively. How could you possibly make such an outrageous claim and how can you prove it? You know, how can you prove something to be true? How can you prove something to be true when it's not verifiable within the grounds of acceptable justification? That, that's the question that this story seeks to answer inside and outside the courtroom. Inside the courtroom, the judge is going to make a decision. Outside the courtroom, a little girl named Susie must decide. Now, Susie is only willing to acknowledge things, to say that she knows things, to believe something, if it can be proved by her senses. She has no patience for claims that can't be proved by strict scientific means. So what does she do when she encounters this claim by this guy, Chris Kringle, to be Santa Claus? You know, she graciously likes the old man, but she finds him to be deluded. Yeah, but something happens to Susie. Over time, she and her audience with her begins to put some pieces together, some evidence that helps to determine if this guy is true or false. Yeah, you know, he looks like Santa Claus, beard and all. He cares for people like Santa Claus should care for people. He comes through on his claim to provide her with this special kind of gift. And so over time, over the course of the movie, his character backs up his claim. And so outside the courtroom, Susie decides in his favor. Meanwhile, inside the courtroom, Mr. Gailey, his defense attorney, is putting forth all sorts of strategies to prove that he is, in fact, Santa Claus, but to no avail. And so at the last minute, the 11th hour, over a course of some humorous convergences, a couple of events unfold, and the U.S. Postal Service sends all of their Santa Claus mail to the courtroom, and on the basis of competent authority, this witnesses to the fact that this man, Chris Kringle, is in fact Santa Claus. Now as the movie ends, we're all left wondering as an audience, is he really Santa Claus? That's a loophole with the male thing. Is he really saying? Is this true and how do we know? Those two questions, is this true and how do we know, are the questions that John, the apostle, is concerned to answer in his first letter. In a world of competing claims about truth, competing claims about God, whose claims count and on what basis? And his answer is simple yet radical. The person whose love matches their claims is genuine. In this 11-part series, I Am a Disciple, we've been studying the New Testament epistle or letter, 1 John, which you can turn to, by the way, if you have a Bible with you. We follow John's train, John's leading all the way through trying to identify what a genuine Christ follower looks like. And this is the ninth message in the series, so it'd be too much to try to review everything that we've covered. But what I do want to do is make some introduction observations that will help us as we approach our passage for today. So last week, Pastor Jim taught through the paragraph that immediately precedes our section. And he brought us all the way to the end of that message by saying that we need to choose our teachers carefully. We need to choose people who are orthodox, who correctly teach the truth from God's word. And in that instance, we're evaluating the content of these teachers. John continues that very same train of thought into our passage for today, but he adds the character of the teachers to our list of evaluation guidelines, and the primary character trait that he chooses to highlight, the thing that we all need to be evaluating people by, is is there evidence of love in their lives? They may make significant claims about God and about truth, but can they back it up with the evidence of love? You know, John wants us to ask of our teachers, are they loving people? Does the love match the claim? And he asks us also to turn that question onto ourselves. Am I a loving person? You know, just a quick aside. Having studied this thing all week long, thinking all about love, I sat one night with Rachel at the dinner table, and I decided to ask her to take a risk. And so I said, Rachel, am I a loving person? And right away, she looked down at her plate and got all sorts of quiet, and then she looked up at me and she said, I guess it depends on how you define love. What?! This is a yes or no question. Ouch. This message is obviously for me, right? And maybe for you too. John wants us to think about whether we're loving people. And we should hardly be surprised that John highlights love as the attribute of most importance because we've heard him talk about this several times in this letter already. That's my next observation. John uses repetition as a primary teaching tool. Rather than progressing in a linear, kind of straight-line fashion from topic to topic, he spirals around things, touching on it once and then again and then again. And so he's already talked about loving one another in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, in chapter 3, verses 11 to 18, and then here we go again in chapter 4, dealing with this theme of love. And so the temptation for all of us, having already heard this touched on a couple of times, is to think that we could take a pass today. But I want to discourage that. you know, Because hearing teaching on loving people is not the same thing as actually loving people. You know, chances are, my hunch is that most of us, after hearing teaching those couple of weeks, decided to put love on the front burner for that week. And so we wanted to kind of focus on loving the jerks in our lives and focus on loving needy people in our lives. But over time, this kind of stuff moves its way to a back burner. Yes, you know, since love is the chief virtue of the Christian, we shouldn't be surprised to hear about it regularly and to keep on practicing it. Now, I'd also discourage you from assuming that you've heard everything John has to say about the topic of love because you haven't heard everything John has to say about the topic of love yet. yet. You know, John's repetition is on the matter of the big theme of love, but in all of the specifics, he's got a lot to say. If you took the time to compare those two passages that I've just mentioned with our passage for today, you'd notice some significant differences. John has the same theme, but he's working a variety of variations on that theme. And that leads to my last observation. The most significant variation that John works on the theme of love is to closely link, catch this, closely link God's love and our love. In fact, they're so closely linked in John's thinking that God's love becomes the model, the pattern for the way that we're to love one another. So we're considering the love of God today, and this is not an endeavor to take lightly. In fact, I came across a quote by a theologian. He'd been writing about lots of attributes about God, and he says this, When we looked at God's wisdom, we saw something of his mind. When we thought of his power, we saw something of his hand and his arm. When we considered his word, we learned about his mouth. But now, contemplating his love, we are to look into his heart. We shall stand on holy ground. We need the grace of reverence that we may tread it without sin. The love of God is the summit of revelation. It's the holy of holies, so to speak, because we, as mere humans, are trafficking in one of the most important arenas of God's character, and we got to do so humbly and reverently. Let me try to take all of these observations and put them together. If our claims are contingent on our love, then we need to have an accurate picture of love. We need to look at love in person. That's the title for this message today. And that means that we're going to be looking at God's love so that we can all love in person to those around us. Now hopefully you're to 1 John chapter 4 in your Bible. You've got your weekly welcome so you can take some notes. John draws our attention to three characteristics of God's love. Here's the first one. The Father's love is characterized by sending. Follow along as I read 1 John 4. Verses 7 through 11. John says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, one of the really important things to note about these verses is the way that John has structured them. But we're not going to see this as clearly as we need to see this, unless we digress for a moment to consider an American favorite, the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Chances are you've had several of these in your life. It's estimated that every single high school student in our country will have 2,500 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches by the time they graduate from high school. So chances are you've had several of these things. The peanut butter and jelly sandwich is a piece of art. Two pieces of bread. You start with the peanut butter because the peanut butter needs to get slathered very nicely on one side. And whatever's left over on the knife needs to provide a thin layer for where the jelly will sit so it sticks well. You put the jelly on, and then you put them together, and then you eat them, and it's delectable and lovely. That's the structure of the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And now we can finally look at these verses to figure out what the structure is that John is using. The PB&J sandwich is now firmly in place in our minds, right? Right. And so now we can see how John puts this thing together. We have, in verses 7 through 11, a Bible PB&J. Notice first the pieces of bread. Verses 7 and 11 both start with an appeal to John's dear friends. Both have references to God's command to love one another, and both ground this command in God's love. Now notice this. The only difference between the two is that things are flip-flopped. So that love one another comes first in verse 7 and second in verse 11, and God's love comes second in verse 7 and first in verse 11. You see that? The pieces of bread in our sandwich confirm, then, this point that I made a moment ago. John sees God's love and ours as very closely linked together, and it has very significant implications. In order to understand these significant implications, we need to get to the middle of the sandwich. We need to move on to the jelly. The jelly comes in the second half of verse 7 and verse 8. This is what John says there. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. See, John revisits a familiar theme again, repetition, by referencing those born of God. You might remember that we've already said that children of God will look like him in this series. It's the old like father, like son deal. Here again, it's the exact same thing. The link between God's love and our love works because those who are of him, his children, are going to look like him. And that leads straight then into the peanut butter. If God is love and his children are to love like him, to look like him, then what does God's love look like? This is the heart of the section. Verses 9 through 10 describe the way in which God showed his love. And as we've seen, we've already described this as a sending love of God. Look at verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now for even full effect, skip down to the middle of verse 14. The same action is noted there. John says, The Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. The peanut butter tells us that the Father's love is characterized by sending. So here now is John's train of thought for this entire section, verses 7 through 11. Here are four short statements. God is love. His children will love like him. God's love is ascending love. So, love like that. Now, that's clear enough, but a couple of questions come to our mind because saying love like that isn't very clear. Until you understand what the that is. What, what way do we emulate God's love? What, what is the heart of God's sending love that we're supposed to emulate? Well, To answer that question, let's, let's just back up for a moment. In another part of the Bible, we hear that God sent his son at just the right time in the course of his dealings with people. Now, Christians have summarized the whole story of the Bible. God's ways of working with people in four big moments. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. In short, creation. God made everything and he made all of us. And he did it so that he could dwell amongst his people. Fall. But humankind decided to go their own way. By sinning, we broke off from the presence of God. But God in his grace, in his mercy, in his great love took action. He initiated a great plan of redemption that culminated in sending his son at just the right time. And when God deems it appropriate, he'll bring all of this stuff to an end and he'll dwell amongst his people. Now, the key for our purposes in even just reflecting, summarizing that storyline briefly, is that God's great act of love, sending his son, was an action despite our unloveliness due to sin. The sending of the Son is in response to sinful humanity, in response to rebellion, so that God could bring about redemption. In John's gospel, he says it this way. He's talking about the nature of people and our sin and our rebellion. And he says people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And so in the context of darkness, in the context of evil, God did nothing, right? No, John says, For God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but have everlasting life, eternal life. God's sending love is a matter of him taking the initiative to redeem sinful humanity by sending his love, which means that God's sending love is a matter of taking the initiative. God takes the initiative, he acts. So with that insight in mind, we can go back and start to think about how do we then emulate God's love? There's a link between God's love and ours. God's children will have a love that looks like the father's love, and his love is characterized by taking the initiative. And so how do we emulate this aspect of God's love? let Let me give you a few suggestions that might get you thinking on how you can show love to other people as a direct result of reflecting on God's initiating love. He says that we're to love one another. So you could think of people in lots of different categories, friends and family members and spouse and kids and community group members and the church in general. Loving is all about engaging for the sake of someone else. It's all about initiating for the sake of someone else. Love is always about another person, not about me. So if we're going to take action out of love, initiate out of love, then we can't avoid people that we don't want to talk to or that we don't like being around. Instead, we need to initiate. We need to engage with them. I don't know if you've had the experience of being like at the grocery store or something, and you're in one aisle and you're doing your thing and you come out into the main aisle and down the way you see somebody who you know drains the life out of you. If somebody who doesn't contribute anything to the conversation, doesn't ask any questions, and you just want to duck and hide. And so you go into the next aisle, even though you don't need Q-tips, you find yourself studying all of the Q-tips, totally <laughs> engrossed in the Q-tips, hiding, hiding from somebody. Initiating love, sending love, initiates because it's about other people. You know, go, go have a conversation with that person, express love to that person, love one another. If we can't show love in a small way like this, how can we claim to love God? You know, if we're going to take initiative, take action out of love, then we can't be indifferent toward needs. We can't be apathetic, doing nothing in the face of significant needs. You know, This could be simple stuff like taking the initiative to relieve your spouse from some tiring activity that you can go do on their behalf. This could just be putting down something that I really want to do so that I can enter into something that somebody else really wants to do. This could be initiating a conversation In the midst of a conflict scenario, because I want to bring resolution to it, and out of love, I'm going to initiate this conversation, even though I don't want to because we've got to do this. It could be I'm going to initiate a conversation that's going to be really difficult because I'm going to point something out in someone's life that needs to change. But out of love, I'm going to initiate rather than be apathetic or indifferent. If we're really going to engage in loving things, take action out of love, then it might help to get to know other people's ways of receiving love. This is often called the love languages. A resource for this is Gary Chapman's book, The Five Love Languages. You've probably heard about this. This is super helpful and really, really simple. But just understanding that people receive love in certain kinds of ways, figuring out what way they do, and then loving them accordingly is an act of love. Understanding one another and living with each other with grace, with patience, with kindness. The the book was originally written for married couples, but it's been adapted to lots of different audiences. The basic ideas... You know, stuff like I'm going to give a gift to someone who I know is loved by gift giving. I'm going to do it without a formal occasion. I'm going to write a note of encouragement to someone who loves words of affirmation. That's how they receive love. So I'm going to love them that way. I'm going to go out of my way to tangibly and lovingly serve because this person is loved most by acts of service. I'm going to go out of my way. I'm going to take the initiative. I'm going to take action to understand this person and to express love to this person. That's how we take the initiative. One final suggestion. Initiating is a product of intentionality. So I would encourage you to take some time to think at the beginning of each week about one person that you could go crazy in love toward, taking initiative to show them love, to do specific things. Write down this question and use it as a prompt. God, what do you have for me to do this week to show love to so-and-so? And then think it through and do some things. Ask God to give you the ability to follow through on your plan. Now, as I outline those four ideas of ways that we can initiate, engage to express love, I recognize full well that this is not easy. I came across a poem that underscores this point. Listen to these sage words. He writes, To live above with those you love, undiluted glory. To live below with those you know, that's another story. And we all experience, we all know that to be true. A pastor was once asked if if we're going to see our loved ones when we get to heaven. And he responded, not only the loved ones. Because that's true. Those things just underscore the, the difficulty of this as we try to do this in our lives. But it also emphasizes John's point. We need to receive God's love and reflect upon God's love in order to express a similar kind of love to people in our lives. The Father's love is characterized by sending. Here's the second characteristic, the Spirit's love. The Spirit's love is characterized by indwelling. One of the fears of every church is that it has a young pastor who has young children and preaches. Because everybody thinks that you're just going to get lots and lots of illustrations about children. So I have intentionally stayed away for the last eight months of making any comments about my little daughter, whose new. new daddy references have been dropped completely from my sermons. But I've just now started to come out of those sleepless months. And I've been able to think a little bit and learn some things about my little baby and about love from a father to a tiny little daughter. And so I've got some reflections for you, okay? Here's my conclusion after eight months of expressing love to this little tiny human. This is as significant for me as it is simple. This relationship isn't reciprocal. <laughs> I'm getting nothing, folks. I give and I give. She, in those early months, didn't do anything. You know, she would ask us to be patient with her through sleepless nights, many, many of them. She would ask us to be patient as she, she figured out the whole reflux and spitting up thing all over my clothes. She would ask us to be patient, and she, would, she wouldn't even talk to us. You know, she hasn't even learned how to talk yet. She expects me to be able to love her and enter into a relationship when I can't even talk with her. She expects us to be patient with her as she figures out which direction the gas is going to be moving. She expects a lot of us, and she gives us very, very little in return. So the question is, how can a person, how can another human being be willing to express love like this? So much love with nothing in return. And here's my answer to that question. I am able to express love to my lovely little tiny daughter in moments like those because I know that one day I'm going to get back at her when I'm old. She's going to suffer through sleepless nights. I know, for real, that I can be patient with her in all of those moments, express love to her in all of those moments, because in doing that, I recognize full well that one day she'll be capable of reciprocal love. You know, our patience is a small, although costly, service in light of the end goal, now, I hesitate to work from human experience to think much about God because I want my thoughts about God to come from his revelation. But I'll do this hesitantly, and then we can see if the text bears this truth out. So in using the comparison between my relationship with my daughter and my thinking about God, Charlotte is to me what I am to God. You know, What causes God to be so patient in his love toward me, toward any of us? Well, God loves me. Because he has an end goal in mind that's deeply satisfying. And his end goal is to make me loving toward people in the same way that he loves people. Because when I'm living that way, when any of us are living that way, when we're really loving well, then we're really living. That's God's pattern. That's God's plan. That's the way that God works in our lives. And he does it as he changes us from the inside out. Let's go back to the text, take a look at the next several verses, focusing on the characteristic of the Spirit's love, verses 12 through 16. John says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And so we know and rely on the love God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Now, did you notice the repeating idea throughout those verses? John connects God's love to the indwelling spirit, and from there he connects both to our love for one another. Let's let's look first at the places where he connects God's love to the indwelling spirit. In verse 12, he writes, God lives in us, indwelling spirit. In verse 13, he says, we live in him and he in us. And then mentions specifically the gift of the spirit. In verse 15, he says, God lives in them and they in God. And then finally, in the last line, verse, in the last line of verse 16, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. See, John mentions this indwelling love four times, and when we look at the surrounding context of these phrases, we notice something really interesting. The second and the third references in verses 13 and 15 relate this indwelling specifically to the Spirit and to Jesus. And here's why that's significant. Real love is always connected to the presence of the Spirit and a confession of Jesus because real love can only come from God because God is love. In other words, we can't expect to love one another well if we're not connected to God's love as it's revealed in Jesus and the Spirit. You can't express love if you're not experiencing God's love. If you're not in God's love, you can't express God's love. Does that make sense? Then the other two references, the first in verse 12 and the last in in verse 16, relate this indwelling love. And this implication there is that God's Spirit is in the business of growing our love to completion. Look at the last line of, of verse 12. God lives in us and His love is made complete in us. So here's the deal. If you're a Christ follower who's surrendered to Jesus... Then God's spirit is in you, patiently growing your ability to love until it reaches the goal of completion. Think about this. God's spirit is patient with each of us in light of the time when our love will look like his love. Daily patient with us in light of the time when our love will look like his love. So shouldn't we extend that same kind of grace to other people in our lives? Shouldn't we give the benefit of the doubt rather than jumping to conclusions or making decisions on the basis of faulty assumptions? Shouldn't we bear with each other's weaknesses because we really want everyone else to bear with our weaknesses? When I reflect on my relationships with the people that I'm closest to in my life, I realize that they are often the people who get the least patience from me. And that's true even though I can say that God's Spirit is patiently bearing with me, bearing with my weaknesses and my lack of love and my regular tendency toward sinfulness. He's patiently bearing with me even as I grow, but I'm unwilling to extend that patience to other people. But if we're going to take our love cues from the indwelling love of the Spirit, then when we're inconvenienced or we're interrupted or we're annoyed by something, we can exercise patience because we realize that we can sweat the small stuff in light of the long view. And when we do that, something absolutely incredible happens. God makes himself visible in our love for one another. Take a look at verse 12 again. John says, No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Now, when I first read that first line, I had absolutely no idea how it connected to the second half of the verse. But as I reflected a little bit, it finally popped. God makes himself visible. No one's ever seen God. God makes himself visible when we express love to one another. When we're patient with one another, when we extend grace to one another, when we bear with each other's weaknesses, when we work with each other through struggles, God's love is made visible. God in person, in the person who's expressing love. It's amazing. It's the love of the Spirit in us. As he patiently bears with us, we can patiently bear with one another. See, God's love is in initiating love. He, he bears us along patiently toward an end goal. That's his indwelling love. Here's one final characteristic of God's love. The son's love is characterized by giving. A friend of mine told me a story a few weeks ago about a woman named Evelyn Brand. She lived in the first part of the last century, and by the time she was about 16 years old, she received what she perceived to be a call from God to go to be a missionary in rural India. And so she got married to a man named Jesse, and the two of them served in this rural village in India, and their primary goal initially was to prepare roads so that they could get educational resources and medical supplies to this village. In the meantime, they were doing all sorts of preaching about Jesus and living out their faith, and, and unfortunately, in the course of seven years' time, they never saw anybody come to know Christ. They didn't see any conversions from their, all of their missionary work. Well, one day, somebody finally came to know Jesus, and it was a really significant person. He was the local priest of a tribe. And so this guy was sick, he was dying, and Evelyn and Jesse were the only two people who would go near enough to him to care for him as he was dying. And so he said this in his final days, this God, Jesus, must be the true God, because only Jesse and Evelyn will care for me in my dying. Their love. Their love. You know, that, that man's conversion opened the door to lots of fruitful ministry for them for several more years. Unfortunately, after about six or seven years, Jesse, her husband, died. And Evelyn, at about 50 years old at this point, you'd think she'd throw in the towel, but she decided to stay and to continue serving in India. And she did for 45 more years until she was 95 years old and died in India. For those 45 years, her ministry was characterized by getting on a horse and riding from village to village to serve people in Jesus' name and to preach the gospel, to tell them about Jesus. When she was 93, she'd fallen off of her horse and broken so many bones and had so many concussions that finally they took the horse away, they put her on a stretcher, and some men carried her from village to village at 93 years old to preach the gospel. Self-giving love. That's self-giving love. Now, there's a danger in telling a story like that, you know, because the moment that we hear that story, even though we might be inspired to really love a little bit, we could also write it off as an extreme position that we can't possibly be held to ourselves. You know, we take ourselves off the hook because her devotion is so over the top. That can't possibly be expected of all of us. That kind of love? Let me, let me tell you another story. Our ministry staff gathers two times a week to pray. And several months ago, in one of those prayer times, we were asked to pray about big kinds of things that would sort of change the world. Huge prayer needs. So we were given a couple examples of these kinds of things, and we started to pray. And as we were praying, I was reflecting on the fact that Jesus also says that small things expand. And so I thought, maybe it would be worth praying for those big things, but we could also pray for some of these smaller things. And so I began to pray for all sorts of what seemed to be smaller acts of love. That people in our church would be characterized by love for one another in their families. That dads would serve their spouses and that they would serve their kids and that there would be a mutual sort of love for one another. And it was all that kind of stuff. That we would be intentional in reaching out to people in our community and serving in Jesus' name, showing love. That we'd talk about Jesus with people who needed to know him. All sorts of normal, everyday kinds of acts of love for the people of Christ Community Church. Question. Which is of greater significance? That we give ourselves to a village in rural India all of our lives, or that we daily give ourselves to love one another through small acts of devotion? Now, before you answer that question, consider this. The common denominator in both of those scenarios is that we will need to selflessly give of ourselves to express love. Both scenarios call us to love by giving everything we have. So which is of greater significance? What strikes me is that on the one hand, we have a tendency to write off granny brand as extreme, and on the other hand, we have a tendency to write off small daily acts of love as too too small to matter. And in the end, what happens most often is that we never get around to living a life of sacrificial love like either of those two things. We don't go to the extreme, and we don't do the daily stuff. We just kind of sit in the middle. But God has made us to live a life of self giving love and it's the life that we see modeled in his son take a look at the next section of first john verses 17 to 21 john says this is how love is made complete among us so that we'll have confidence on the day of judgment in this world we are like jesus there is no fear in love but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment the one who fears is not made perfect in love We love because he first loved us. There's that link again. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they've not seen. He has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Now, there are a host of puzzling statements in these verses, but one of the most puzzling by far is John's claim in verse 17 that in this world we are like Jesus. Now, similar to what we did with the Father and the Spirit, we want to understand how are we like the Son? How are we like Jesus? And the similarity is found in the way that we love. Now, how did Jesus, God's Son, demonstrate love? Well, in his daily interactions with people, he was obedient to God's command to love God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength and to love people as himself. John even alludes to the double love command at the very end of our passage in verse 21. This was Jesus' way of loving, putting others first by daily giving of himself in the normal stuff of everyday life. But that's clearly not all, right? We've already read in our passage about Jesus lovingly and obediently being sent by God to bring life to people whose sins have cut them off from life. Jesus does that through his death on the cross. And so he is, according to John, the Savior of the world through those acts of love. That's how Jesus loved. And John says that we are like him In the world. That is, we live lives of love that mirror Jesus' self sacrificing, self giving, selfless love. That's how Jesus loved. And when we live a life like that, we we demonstrate, we evidence the fact that we've been truly changed. That's the link that connects all of these puzzling statements together. Because as I'm reading this through, I recognize that John is talking about emulating Jesus' love, but I have no idea what that has to do with confidence or fear of punishment, all these things that he's talking about. So what does loving like Jesus have to do with confidence on the day of judgment? Well, if I'm living a life of love which shows up in loving a brother or a sister that I see day in and day out, then I can be confident to use a bunch of John's phrases that I'm born of God, that I know God, that I'm from God, that He lives in me because only Jesus can produce that kind of change in me that I could actually express love to somebody and so I can stand with confidence on the day of judgment because I know I am in Him. I am from Him. I look like Him. The same kind of question with this punishment thing. What does Jesus loving like Jesus have to do with punishment and fear? Well, if I'm living a life of love, which shows up in loving a brother or sister that I see in the day-in and day-out stuff of life, then I need not fear punishment from God because, again, to use John's phrases, I'm born of Him. He lives in me. I know Him. See, when somebody goes... From self-centered to selfless, from stingy to generous, from self-protecting to self-sacrificial, it's always the work of God, a product of divine grace that conforms them to the pattern of Jesus. And so John connects all of these dots. He comes full circle again to the concern of the whole letter and to the concern of that illustration about Miracle on 34th Street. How do we know that we know? How do we know that this is true? How do we know what we know? We can test things that can't be verified by our senses by looking at our love. Simply put, John does it this way. If the Son's sacrificial love marks your life, then you're a genuine Christ follower. If the Son's sacrificial love marks your life, then you're a genuine Christ follower. Now I want to ask some questions that will help us to think through whether or not the son's sacrificial love marks our lives, and as I do so, I want to invite our bands to come and prepare to lead us in worship. If the son's sacrificial love marks your life, then you're a genuine Christ follower. So, are you loving sacrificially? John says, Whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. Who do you need to die to self to love today? Is it the person that sits next to you? Is it a neighbor, someone in your community group, your kids, a sibling, your spouse, a community group member? Who, who do you need to set aside time for? Who needs a meal that you could deliver? Who needs some encouragement? Who needs to hear about Jesus from you? Who do you need to put first? Who needs to interrupt or inconvenience you without getting blown up at or blown off? Who can you serve self-sacrificially this week? When we love like that, John says that we're like Jesus in this world. Little images, little mirrors... Of Jesus walking around expressing self-giving love. On the basis of God's great love for us, he sent his son to save us. He sent his spirit to sanctify us. And one of the many results of that kind of demonstration of love is that we become initiating, patient, self-giving people of love to one another. God's love fuels our love. It shows up in a life of self-giving love, and that kind of love is the evidence that we are like Father, like Son, or more appropriately, like Father, Son, and Spirit.